0: Hi, and welcome to this installment of our new Books at the Hayman Center panel podcast, sponsored by Columbia's Office of the Divisional Deans and the Faculty of Arts and Sciences, and the Society of Fellows and Hayman Center for the Humanities. I'm Olivia Branscomb, And I'm Tim Lundy. The presentations you are about to hear come from an event held on April 21st, 2021, honoring the work of Frank Garrity and Associate Professor of History at Columbia University. Professor Garrity is a specialist in sports history whose most recent book from 2021 is The Sports Revolution, How Texas Changed the Culture of American Athletics. In The Sports Revolution, Professor Garrity tells the story of the enormous changes to American sports culture in the 1960s and 1970s centered on the state of Texas. These decades saw an explosion of interest in sports such as football and basketball, the expansion of professional sports leagues and franchises, and a new cultural and economic centrality of sports in American life. Professor Garrity argues that the civil rights movement and second wave feminism shaped the sports revolution of the 60s and 70s. New alliances with entrepreneurs opened professional and college sports more widely to Black and female athletes, and expanded the audience for sports as well. At the same time, with the growing commercialized sports industry, new potential for exploiting athletes also emerged. For these reasons, Professor Garrity argues, studying the changes in sports culture during this period helps us better understand how social movements in general unfold. First, we will hear Professor Garrity outline his book and read an excerpt that illustrates his approach, combining vivid sports writing with deep historical context. Then, we will hear a response from Yosef Soret, a professor of religion and African-American and African diaspora studies at Columbia University.
1: So what is the sports revolution, how Texas changed the culture of American athletics about? In a nutshell, this book tells the story of the impact of the civil rights and second wave feminist movements on the world of big time professional and collegiate sports in the United States from the 1960s to the 1980s. The setting is the state of Texas, uh, a place that I lived uh, and worked uh, for 11 years, and I still have deep connections to. Texas, that region that had a profound impact on the expansion of professional and collegiate sports uh, in the United States in this period. Texas merits attention not only because of the enormous influence of the state sports entrepreneurs and athletes, but also because it serves as a fascinating case study in its own right. The book illustrates how an unlikely alliance among sports entrepreneurs and athletes from marginalized backgrounds changed American sporting culture. It shows how Texas sports entrepreneurs transformed uh, US sports spectating by building new facilities like the Houston Astrodome, the United States first dome sports stadium, that combines suburban-style comfort while catering to a cross-class and cross-racial constituency. It shows how far-sighted white team owners, college admi- uh, athletic administrators, and coaches teamed up with aspiring Black athletes to usher in the racial integration of professional and, inter- and intercollegiate sports in the state. It also chronicles how Texas became a site of gender transformations by illustrating how feminist-inspired sports entrepreneurs and athletes use Philip Morris tobacco money to launch the women, the first women's professional tennis circuit in, in Houston in 1970. At the same time, it's at that time that the Dallas Cowboy cheerleaders provoked intense debates about the meaning of womanhood in the age of, of, of the sexual revolution and second wave feminism. The book tracks the expansion of professional sports uh, into the state, right? It tells the story of how a mayor of an emerging suburb in Dallas-Fort Worth lured Major League Baseball from Washington, D.C., while also documenting how Mexican-American fans helped spark a revival of professional basketball in San Antonio. The book ends in the 1980s, and it argues that the social achievements that were catalyzed by these alliances were undone by the very same forces of commercialization that set them in motion. Tracking these changes on the field, in the stands, and in the television truck, the book illustrates how, for better and for worse, Texas was at the center of America's expanding political, economic, and emotional investments in sport in this period. At the same time, the book really is an interpretive history of the 1960s and 70s in the United States, the period when the gains of the Black freedom and feminist movements could be vividly seen in the world of sports. During these years, marginalized athletes of color and women athletes entered realms of of the athletic labor force where they had been previously excluded. Yet they did so under the careful supervision of white team owners white male team owners, managers and coaches. By analyzing these dynamics on the field and off the field, the book draws together traditions of sports writing along with critical sports studies with the insights of intersectional feminist ethics studies. The book is written for a general interest reader and for scholars, uh, but it aims to make an intervention in the historiography of sports and the social movements of the 1960s and 70s. Whereas most sports books treat the black athlete unquote, 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 women in sports, quote, unquote, and unmarked white sportsmen separately, typically, this book tries to put them in the same analytic field, highlighting both the racial and gender implications of the sports revolution within a larger context of deepening capitalist social relations. The book asks readers to scrutinize the terms of inclusion that were established in this period, to highlight the ways that sports performance catalyzed and represented freedom and equality, while also underscoring the clear limits of that transformation. The book really took shape when I was doing public history work, actually, when I was the director of the John L. Warfield Center for African and African American Studies at the University of Texas, Austin, almost a decade ago. It was during those years that I encountered a dedicated group of Black sports enthusiasts who were firmly committed to preserving the history of African Americans in athletics during the era of Jim Crow segregation and beyond. Historian Michael Hurd's book, Thursday Night Lights, compellingly demonstrates the history of Black athletics in Jim Crow, Texas. In in this history, I saw how black sporting institutions, like black churches and black schools, provided spaces of community formation that helped African Americans survive Jim Crow, as it did for the Mexican American population in the state as well. Sport also provided a vehicle of upper mobility for working class white Texans, I should say. These realizations, doing this public history work actually along with my evolving interest in sports history, led me to jump at the chance to write a history of sport and society in Texas. That region that was shaped by the legacy of colonization, slavery, and Jim Crow segregation, but had been undeniably transformed by the influx of Black and marginalized people into previously prohibited spaces. The enormous popularity of sports in Texas, people know this nationwide, that uh, sports is a a Texas uh, obsession, Uh, including its history of cross-racial interaction and entrepreneurial innovation seem to be topics worthy of of, of, uh, exploration. And these suspicions were borne out by the research I did in various archives throughout the state. With this book, I feel like I've been able to harmonize my longstanding interest in sport performance with my own social justice commitments to work, to join the work of historians who who aim to write the history of the United States from the perspective of the dispossessed, the marginalized and the silenced. Before I end, I just figure I'd read to you just a, a little excerpt from the book, really just the beginning of chapter eight to get a sense of how I try to bring these things together. There's a lot of play-by-play uh, sports analysis in this book. I won't read that stuff to you because that takes too long to get into. Uh, this chapter is called Slammin' and Jammin' in Houston. And it's a, it's, a, it's a chapter on the University of Houston's athletic program, the basketball program in particular and its impact on on the growth of the uh, college basketball industry, right? Centered on the the labor of its black athletes, uh, many of them black Houstonians, but one special one that came from the African continent. And that's what I'm gonna read about right now in this beginning, uh, this passage. Slamming and jamming in Houston. In October, 1980, a tall and athletic young man from Lagos, Nigeria arrived in New York City. Unlike the Africans who had arrived on the shores of the United States on ships and in chains centuries before, this young African landed in an airplane at John F. Kennedy Airport in search of a scholarship to play basketball for a major American university. The first stop on his scheduled itinerary was St. John's University in New York City, a school at the forefront of a Northeast college basketball renaissance as part of the newly formed Big East Conference. But as he stepped out of the airport, he immediately took a disliking to the autumn air. He wrote years later, quote, it was cold. I had never felt cold like that before, unquote. At that moment, he decided that New York was not for him. The next stop on his itinerary was supposed to be Houston, Texas, which he was scheduled to visit two days later. But he managed to change his flight and leave the cold of New York later that same day when he arrived from Lagos. Not only with the young man who was named Hakim Olajuwon, would go on to change national sports history, meaning the sports history of this country, but he would also become the face of a new Houston, a new transnational Texas. His decision to abandon his plans to visit St. John's in New York and go directly to Houston, paralleled the larger population movement to the rapidly growing urban centers of the South and Southwest. The African immigrant was like many others at the time, Houston bound. And I'm referring to that last quote, Houston Bound, to Tawana Steptoe's excellent book, uh, highly recommended, uh, looking at migration of, of African Americans and, and Mexican origin peoples in the growth of, uh, of the music uh, world of Houston. An excellent award winning book that really influenced my thinking about Texas and Houston in particular. So, with that passage, right, I'm trying to kind of situate this legendary basketball player. If you're not a basketball fan, that's okay, uh, in the context of this migration to the Sun Belt. I'm trying to cast Olajuwon's story alongside the legacy of the slave trade, right? And to sort of see how the Black community is being reconfigured in Texas, you know, partly through the immigration of African immigrants to Houston. And some of those, uh, some of the, the, the descendants of those migrants, I taught at the University of Texas. There were a number of Nigerian-American students at the University of Texas. And so rather than tell the story just of Olajuwon's back, basketball virtuosity, which I do, you know, I'm trying to kind of set him in this historical context that I think allows us to understand his legacy and the legacy of this moment uh, more fully. So that's where I'll stop, and I look forward to hearing from my colleagues. Thank you.
0: Next, we will hear a response from Yosef Surrett, a professor of religion and African-American and African diaspora studies at Columbia University. Professor Surrett is also director of the Center on African-American Religion, Sexual Politics, and Social Justice and he studies religion in black communities throughout the United States. Professor Surret frames his response to the sports revolution as a sports fan rather than an expert in sports history. He also asks Professor Garrity about the role of capitalism and religious faith, particularly evangelical Christianity, in his history. At the end, we will hear Professor Garrity expand on these topics and conclude by calling on scholars to write about Black performance and virtuosity in sports the same way that they do in other kinds of performance.
2: I have three comments, and so my time may be a little brief. And I want to couch them by saying, and maybe this is my role on the panel in a certain way, is that I've never researched sports. Um, I am not a sports scholar in any uh, uh Uh, any frame of of, of any suggestion that I might make a claim uh, to, uh, but I am a fan and I'm a former athlete. And so I I am unequivocally a fan of sports and even more so now a fan of this book. And so maybe as a tribute to Farah, and maybe as a tribute to Frank, I have three comments that all begin with an F uh, today, which was, it's just how things take shape. And the first comes as a former athlete and more as a, but more so as a fan, the second one is maybe a little bit about finances. And the third is, uh, is one that maybe is perhaps unsurprising as a uh, professor of religion. The third F today will be faith, um, and, and, and we'll get there. Um, and the last two, at least, have questions with them. But in the realm of a, a fan, I, I do want to just um, thank and celebrate the book, uh, which so powerfully Brings together a, a sort of social history and the history of sport with great eloquence and sophistication. Uh, and with the title, "The Sports Revolution," there are immediately a host of images that come to mind that one could, you know, immediately chart from Tommy Smith and John Carlos to Kaepernick in the moment. Right? That's perhaps the first image when the language of revolution uh, comes to mind. And that story is there. But I also want to commend the multiple registers in which Frank tells a story about a set of entangled and overlapping revolutions. Of course, the racial and gender sexual revolutions of the nineteen sixty sort of economic uh, revolutions, a rapidly shifting economy and media landscape that makes possible a new set of sports worlds, if you will. And then, of course, how these shifting forces come together to fundamentally change the landscape of sports in the post-civil rights and post-soul era, but also the face of the nation. Um, And for me, in the realm of fan, uh, right, you just provided such a richer and broader context for my earliest memories of what it meant to be a fan. And you tell us the, the sophisticated social history that's there in ways. Uh, that right was just fundamentally edge. I'm part of the general readership and that sort of introduction to this history is there, but you also brought to new life the, with your ability to carry on the story as a commentator, if you will. I wanted to hear you read the play-by-play, um, but I can see Earl Campbell running people over and then running down, right? I mean, often because I'm a former athlete, I'm ultra uh, cranky sports reader. But I never felt that there because I, I mean, you you get it. You tell the story, Frank, in a way. So I, whether it's re-encountering Earl Campbell uh, or Xena Garrison on, on the tennis courts, and then just the broader, I mean, of course, by Slamma Jamma as basketball being my primary uh, uh, space of fandom, but giving a whole broader context for the finger roll of George the Iceman Gervin, right? To sort of understand the context of an earlier moment in San Antonio sports history, prior to the Duncan and David Robinson era, where there's a particular kind of cleaned and polished-up version of right San Antonio as the antithesis of what may be happening in, with Iverson in Philadelphia or even Jordan. Right, this is like there's a different kind of America's team that is implicit in the reading of that San Antonio. Um, thank you uh, for right re- helping me to go back to those earliest memories and to be able to enjoy them all the while being educated. Um, With regards uh, to the finances, I feel like I should know this, but I just didn't. And I guess this maybe speaks to the points about the need for the scholarship uh, that, that Amy was mentioning is from the ups and downs of the oil and tobacco industries, to the range of business backgrounds that provide owners with the capital to stake a claim in professional sports, but also to provide opportunities and platforms for a new generation of athletes under the sign of integration, whether those athletes be black and white or all hues between. And to do that, it would seem together, right, with an appeal to inclusion, but being inscribed in a new set of narratives that are not uh, solely unlimited opportunities, even if access to capital is part of the story. Uh, The question I want to ask is sort of, I mean, I think it's in this, especially as it relates to the question of the economy, the sort of historian's question of change over time, right, that you tell just, I mean, it it just makes such perfect sense as you narrate it. And I think at the end of the book, where you sort of sum up some of the shifts between the early entrepreneurial spirit and social change, dot, 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 that leads towards commodification and profiteering, right? There's a moment for a sec where Well, is is this a narrative of decline? Is this a critique of when sports hits late capital from an earlier moment, Um, right? And I, I just, I, I would love to hear you say a little more as we're sort of thinking about uh, sort of questions around race and wealth and labor that are front and center in sports, whether at the college or collegiate level. This could right be another way of thinking about a history of black capitalism, and the way in which even your question around labor at the outset. Or thinking about the sort of economic opportunities for coaches and for quarterbacks and for owners, the sort of discourse around when it is a black person, right? That is the, right? When black is the adjective in front of quarterback coaches and owners. Um, and I, so I, I'd love to hear, like, what does it mean to think about this in a moment now where, right, on, alongside uh, Kaepernick uh, signing a contract? Alongside his his own protest, where LeBron is signing a lifetime billion dollar deal, and right to think about those two things. And then finally, um, I know this is not the story um, you're telling, but I would love to hear your thoughts. That is maybe not the foregrounded story, uh, which is about where is faith, right? Where or where is whatever the rubric is, right? You have that. Powerful part where you talk about a gift from right uh, the right the Yoruba gods that right, to, uh, to Guy Lewis in the form of a the dream Olajuwon. but I was also thinking about Tom Landry right who became the cover of evangelical comic books in the 1980s right he was a sort of hero uh, within those spaces you you make mention of course of the narrative around Texas Stadium with the opening in the roof so that God can watch. Right, his favorite team play. Uh, but then even in shifting between Dallas and Houston, right, Dallas, not only at the home of the Cowboys, but also the epicenter for uh, televangelism, right? This is the home of Trinity Broadcasting Network. And then Houston, right, and this is where, I mean, maybe there's a stadium story here, right? Uh, the arena in which the Houston Rockets play for just five years is now the home to, right? Lakewood Church, which we all are familiar with when we don't turn the channel after, right? Meet the press on Sunday mornings to Joel Osteen, which of course is, right, this bright and shiny image of multicultural Christianity. Right, as we uh, so, I wonder for you, where is the faith in this story? The where or where are the churches? You you mentioned them in passing, but I'd love to hear more. All right, thank you, Frank. That's 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 my real point. It just was such a pleasure to read, um, and thank you for the invitation to talk about it. So
1: you know, one of the things that occurred to me uh, in Yosef talking about financing is this. You know, this question of capitalism, which you know, I I didn't I didn't foresee dealing with when I started this book. Right. Uh, but it became pretty quick. Quickly, I, I figured pretty. Quick, I mean, I'd have to deal with it pretty quickly, right? Because I had to understand why Texas. You know, the '60s and '70s. You know, this is a U.S. historiographical uh, observation. You know, it's told. You know, in terms of urban history, as a, as a history of urban decline, whether it's the New York City financial crisis, the Bronx is burning, the deindustrialization of the Rust Belt, right? The transformation that we often tell we talk about that period. But that's not what's going on in Texas. Texas, essentially, from an economic standpoint, is on this perpetual upward trajectory until the 1980s, right? So the political economy of Texas, right, weighed very heavily in my thinking about why focus on that place, right? Uh, and not just because it's big and they think they're important. So, you know, so that, that helps explain the power of the sports entrepreneurs who are these sons of oilmen, who decide that they're going to intrude upon the professional uh, sports industry? You know, it's not like the, they were welcome with open arms. Lamar Hunt and Bud Adams and all these folks that I talk about here, right? So part of the story here is understanding how the Sun Belt, and this is something that other historians have talked about, becomes, you know, really important. We look at the second half of the 20th century. Right And so if we're going to understand you know the sports revolution as a national phenomenon and it, and it certainly is, and I think California, you know, you can make a compelling case for California, but I understand the dramatic social change in Texas, right, which is completely steeped in a, in a gym Pro environment. Uh, it seemed to be a, a case that was you know that that really invited a particular kind of analysis, right that allows us to understand, you know, how a society is steeped in these hierarchies transforms to some degree, right? And I think there is a transformation happening there in that period. And I think also it invites us to really think about, you know, respect to race and ethnicity in a, in a nuanced way, so that to talk about these transformations, you have to talk about Mexican Americans, you have to talk about Latinx populations, right? And so, you know, certainly you're seeing a similar dynamic in other parts of the South, certainly in Georgia and Louisiana, but, you know, some of these things are happening even in the early post-war II period when the, the cotton Bowl New Year's Day uh, classic becomes desegregated, right, in the late 1940s. Again, because the entrepreneurs figure out that we're going to, uh, you know, kind of invest in sports as a civic uh, enterprise, as a business enterprise. Uh, and if we're going to do that, we have to, we're going to have to let go of some aspects of Jim Crow segregation, right? That's an interesting dynamic that happens all over the South, but it's happening in Texas first, I think, because of the engine of the economy. That's sort of the argument I make in the book. And so, but I'm also, I guess, joining the work on new histories of capitalism, which again, I didn't see myself doing right in the I'm trying to historicize this process right I'm trying to get us to think about, you know, we celebrate certainly in the sports world. You know, the whole notion of sports being an evil playing field that sport somehow has a particular sensibility with respect to racism or racial integration in particular. But again, that's a story that's inked and linked to these economic transformations, right? And other folks have, have shown this, but I think when you see it happening in a Jim Crow environment, then you really can appreciate that, that shift in that period, right? So this becomes a book about, you know, capitalism and the sports business, the sports industry in flux and that's what enables these transformations right this is not people coming out of you know nba programs like columbia university sports management program to make money in sport that's what happens now you have a much more codified situation starting in the 1980s and moving up into the present than what you see happening in the late 1960s so marginalized people are able to capitalize in that moment right and so that's that explains to me you know, these helps me understand you know the relation between capitalism and social change right and then in the end this is an alliance right I think that's also uh, the story of the Black Freedom Movement in general. Black Freedom Movement is, is a history of social movement transformation and triumph, but it's a, it's a, it's a history of alliances for us with non, non-Black folks, right? Uh, and I think that, you know, we're sort of seeing this dynamic now with the movement for Black lives and sports, like, and seeing the kind of thing that, you know, we're alluded to as woke capitalism now you know, it's, it's so itch to see this development happening just in the last year. The relation between the Black freedom movement and the ways the corporate interests responded are, are analogous to what I saw happening in the 60s and the 70s, right? And other historians have talked about this in other dimensions, but I, I felt like I hadn't seen it so clearly in the, in, with respect to sports. Uh, I, I want to say something about faith. I love the three Fs, Yosef. Uh, I wanted you to ask me about religion, so I'm glad you did. Uh, you know, you could probably write a, maybe somebody has done it already about the religious revolution in this period you know and the growth of, and i see this you know alongside the sport one and even your comments about the growth of the mega churches and the televangelism right and the ways in which you know churches are moving into athletic spaces a little bit later right uh, like the the old summit building in houston and there are many examples of that the the old forum was a church uh, space in los angeles after uh, the lakers left that that arena in the 1990s but there's no question that there is a religious dimension to the story right and some of it shows up in the in the in these self-identifications of some of these white coaches so bill yeoman who's the head football coach of the university of houston-cougars you know when people are trying to ask him you know why did you decide to integrate your football program in the mid-1960s he just says point blank i wasn't a pioneer i'm paraphrasing you know it's just about my relationship with the lord right uh, and and he's, you know, kind of speaking to this pervasiveness of you know that you see very clearly in the Fellowship of Christian athletes, which is a, which is a topic that is a book waiting to be written, by the way, right? The ways in which evangelical Christianity in that period is not as tethered to right-wing politics as it becomes later on after the Reagan era, right? So it's not it doesn't surprise me that, you know some of these coaches are kind of anchoring in their, their sensitivity or their attitudes towards integration around religion, right, because the alliances that we see very clearly now that that's that's that kind of that's something that really takes shape afterwards. Then there's the whole notion of, um, you know, even the role of, of faith in black athletic culture, right? Uh, you know, uh, I think that that's something that's very much part of the Southern black experience in terms of sports. I mean, we see this all the time in terms of performances of of, um, of religiosity on the playing field, but that certainly figures very prominently in the kind of the black sporting culture that I, you know, I link to black churches, but I think there's a lot of overlap there. I also want to say that those integration pioneers like Jerry Levias and some of these other folks who become the first black player, or the first woman player, or the first whatever, they, they took a leap of faith, you know, because in retrospect, you might say to yourself, gee, uh, of course they would sign with a predominantly white school or sign with a professional franchise, it's a no-brainer, but it wasn't a no-brainer, right, and, and when you learn about their experiences, you see why, that they had to take an enormous leap of faith to trust white sporting institutions with their athletic labor, right? And sometimes that trust was warranted and a lot of times it was not, and it was exploited. And that's what we see more often today, as far as I'm concerned, right? And so, you know, I love the notion of of faith running through this story because there are a lot of people acting on faith, right? This is a moment when things are shifting very rapidly. uh, And some of that faith is religiously inspired and some of it is just taking a risk. And that's a lot of the story. I think of this book are entrepreneurs, activists, and athletes. Le- you know, taking leaps of faith. You know, that's that's my thinking about faith in this book. You know, I have an eye towards Black studies and interventions with this book, right? I think Black studies scholars can write about a Haki Malaga one and a George Gervin in the ways in which Farrah Jasmine Griffin writes about Billie Holiday, in the ways in which Deborah Pryce writes about divas. Right? There is a well-established many established traditions in black studies of jazz writing, of writing about black performance, right? But we don't have it in sports in the same way. We have journalists writing about sports in very eloquent ways. And in fact, much of that play-by-play analysis is informed by sports journalism, but also by performance studies. You know, I, I'm, I'm connected to a very important performance studies scholar in my own household, so I, that's part of it. But, um, but I, you know, I want us to think about how we can write about black athletic virtuosity. You know, because uh, I haven't seen it. You know, I see it here and there with Muhammad Ali and little things like that. But you know, like when we think about Serena Williams, when we think about a, a Simone Biles, we think about some of these folks that I write about, among others. Uh, they are sources of of, of storytelling and, and theoretical inspiration. I think, in terms of embodied practice. So, you know, I, I feel like I have to say that <laughs> as a call for <laughs> our field to take these figures seriously, and so we can talk about Black athletes certainly as objects of exploitation by the capitalist machine uh as we should or as you know people making a lot of money uh although the people who who pay lebron james are making more money than he does right the billionaires have more money than the millionaires um but i think as a as a black studies exercise there's just a lot of work to do you know uh to write about people in the past the way we write about john coltrane the way we write about miles davis the way we write about you know billy Holiday. you know and so i feel like i I have to say that because I think that that's that's, a, that's, a, that's an opening for folks to, to take up. People have done it, but there's much more to do.
0: Thanks so much for listening to today's podcast, celebrating Frank Garrity's The Sports Revolution. From Columbia University's Society of Fellows and Heyman Center for the Humanities, I'm Tim Lundy. And I'm Olivia Branscombe. Our theme music is the song Moonrise by Poddington Bear from soundofpicture.com.